This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. It's the Carabao Cup quarterfinals. Big penalty wins for Chelsea and Fulham. At Stamford Bridge, Kieran Trippier is still really awfully tired. Maybe Eddie Howe should let him hibernate for winter. Meanwhile, Fulham triumph at Goodison, their first League Cup semi-final ever. We'll have a joyous Archie voice note and ask if a kitten could have struck a penalty with more vigour than Amadou Anana. Liverpool hammer West Ham. Most interesting is the fighting talk from Jurgen Klopp telling fans, if you're not up for Arsenal on Saturday, give your ticket to someone else. And congrats to Middlesbrough, their first League Cup semi-final since 2004 when they won the whole thing. We'll look ahead to the weekend's Premier League action, including Nuno's first game as Nottingham Forest manager at home to Bournemouth. Nick Ames is in Saudi Arabia for the Club World Cup, so we'll catch up with him. We'll apologise to Australia over potatoes, answer your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello. Hello, Lars Sivertsen. Good morning, Max. And bonjour, ça va, Philippe Auclair. Bonjour, bonjour, Max. Uh, yes, Barry, open the box. Where is the Carabao box? I don't have the box. Oh, it's in the office. Oh. Oh, well. In my locker. It's okay. I don't know if it even still works, if the batteries must be gone by now. Could they send us a new one? Would Carabao? They wouldn't. They, I mean, we could ask them, I guess. I mean, I'm not that desperate for it, I'll be honest. <laughs> you know, the admin involved in asking them feels too much. Anyway, to Stamford Bridge. Uh, Chelsea won, Newcastle won. Chelsea won 4 2 on penalties. Felt last like. Chelsea were good in this game. Have they have they turned a corner? Well, I mean, there have actually been quite a lot of games this season in which watching the game and not just the highlights, watching the game, you feel Chelsea are actually doing a lot of good things, uh, which is why I've sort of foolishly predicted so many times that, you know, this Chelsea team is just about to come good. And it just so far hasn't fully happened. But I don't think we should be surprised that they're performing well because I think there's a lot of good sort of there's a lot of good parts to this, and it's taken longer than I think anyone involved with the club, be it fans, players, ownership, would have hoped for it to come together. But but, but listen, this sort of what's often written off as sort of a mad shopping spree that they've gone on under Bowley. The the kicker is that a lot of these young players they brought in are really really good. It's just trying to turn them into a team this quickly when they also they lack a bit of experience, they lack a, a clinical striker and 
some question marks at the goalkeeper. Like, there are some things that are missing that makes it difficult to win football matches. But I, I would defend Chelsea and Pochettino in the sense that I've seen a lot of games this season in which they've actually played quite well. And I am expecting them to, to start turning that into positive results at some point. Meanwhile, Baz, um, Kieran Trippier had a had a sad... He had a sad day. I mean... <laughs> He, I, he, I mean, they, they're all knackered. The Newcastle players. Now, is it is it that he's ex- just exhausted, or he's actually been so good for so long for Newcastle? Like he's he's really played absolutely brilliantly, sort of as well as he could play. That it's just kind of all his mistakes are coming in one little run. Well, before I get on to Trippier, I would like to emphatically argue that I did not think Chelsea were at all good in this game. I thought they were pretty bad, but Newcastle were terrible. I think this game kind of reminded me of the Liverpool-Manchester United game on Sunday, in which I think we all kind of agreed both teams were pretty bad. Chelsea certainly dominated, but they never really looked like scoring until they scored. And for all the possession they had, I thought they should have created a lot more chances. They had one or two, I think Sterling had, had one. And, but I, I would I would not... If if that's what we're judging to be a good Chelsea performance, they really are a lot worse than, than I've thought they were. As far as Trippier is concerned, he has been a transformative signing for Newcastle. Uh, there's a lot of goodwill for him at the moment from Newcastle fans who are prepared to, to you know, let his recent mistakes, and there have been quite a few, Uh, They're prepared to let them slide because of everything he has done for them since signing. But he is having a terrible time of it at the moment. And I was, he didn't actually start this game. He came on and I thought that was interesting. He was, he was rested and, you know, it is becoming a, you know, we've, we've all noticed Newcastle are tired. Look, we're all tired. I'm tired. I'm sure you're tired. <laughs> Lots of football teams are tired. But football players are among the most cosseted individuals on the planet, you know, particularly Premier League footballers. So I'm not sure how much longer Newcastle can get away with, you know, claiming fatigue. There are players Eddie Howe has at his disposal that he just will not play. And that's kind of interesting, you know, when they're down to the bare bones. It looks like they might have lost another couple of players to injury in this game. Anthony Gordon was the subject of a pretty brutal foul from Moyes Casado, which went unpunished. And I thought Levi Colwell was lucky to get away with the one he put in on Emil Kraft. Uh, as far as I know, for some reason, there was no VAR at this game. There's, there's no VAR until the semi-finals, I think, in the Carabao. Right, Cup. okay. Do you think the Chelsea um, players were just like, there's no VAR, we can get violent? <laughs> I think if there had been VAR, Chelsea might have had at least one, if not two players sent off, and that could have changed the game entirely. But as it was, there wasn't any VAR. Um, Paisado and Colwell got away with those tackles. If I was a Newcastle fan, I would be concerned about my team's what seems to be just a losing mentality. They got to the final of this competition last season. They lost it and they didn't lay a glove on Manchester United. They just did not show up. Uh, They did their utmost not to qualify for the, the top four in the last two games of last season, but got away with it because Liverpool also did their utmost not to overtake them. Then they 
got into the group stages of the Champions League, finished bottom of the group. I, you know, there seemed to be given a pass for that. I'm not sure why. I thought they were. It was a pretty poor effort from them. And now they were, you know, a minute or two away from winning this semi-final, and they've been knocked out. And you know, this was a big chance for them to end that well-documented trophy drought. But from what I can see from Newcastle fans on Twitter, they they seem to be making excuses for the team and seem to be accepting that these things happen. But I will be very interested to see what happens if, and it's a big Hollywood sign-sized if with neon lights on it, if Sunderland knocked them out of the FA Cup on the 6th <laughs> of January. A hopeful neon one. That could make things very interesting indeed for Eddie Howe, because I think that is one result Newcastle fans would not tolerate on the back of these recent failures in the Champions League and this semi-final. They've got Luton away as well on Saturday, I think. That's a game they could lose uh, on current form. And so, yeah, they they've Luton away next, then Forest at home, then Liverpool away and Sunderland in the Cup. Pretty, pretty interesting run of fixtures. In what I think may have been your longest answer of all time on the pod, Baz, but I found it all interesting stuff, so well done. And it's, I think it is interesting stuff, and I suspect it's stuff I'll be absolutely pilloried for by the few Newcastle fans we have left listening to this pod. But I, I, I would imagine if a Newcastle fan said what I just said, that would be thoroughly acceptable comment. For, for Trippier, I mean, several things. First of all, um, yes, obviously, he's been an absolutely tremendous signing for Newcastle, but I am I the only person to think that what is happening around him is totally without any relation in terms of scope and scale as to what is actually happening on the on the ground? I mean, he's just a footballer who has had a few bad games. It's obviously never happened to anybody before, Max. He, no, nobody has ever missed a penalty in their lives. That's quite clear. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. Nobody has ever slightly misjudged the flight of the ball and tried to head the ball back to uh, the keeper and misjudged the flight or misjudged the uh, the speed of the ball. Nobody has ever done that. And then suddenly we see this actually ridiculous posting by by Modric's uh, Twitter X uh, team uh, saying, stay strong, brother, or something like that. You're still a super player. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. It's just a guy who had a bad game. That's all there is to it. It's not as if he was experiencing a meltdown. Sometimes you see that. And I was thinking, actually, he was also playing at right back. Emmanuel Ibué for Arsenal had a complete meltdown. That was serious because that was a serious mental health problem. That was his life basically going on the pitch as well. And the guy needed help. What I see for Trippier is I see a player who's given absolutely everything for his club and who's just knackered like the others. And it's just the difference between the incredible level that he that he had for so long with them, taking it from Atletico, and the fact that at the moment he's not really very good. He's making mistakes, okay? Nobody has ever made mistakes on a football pitch. And I think that all of this com- together, combined with this weird obsession um, about, I don't know, about Newcastle underperforming when they're performing exactly as I expected them to be performing and 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 it it is blown out of all proportion and I'm blowing it out of all proportion by talking as long as mm. this and I'm doing right now but it's because it's a very strange reaction 
uh, to uh, just a moment, a difficult moment, as Carlo Ancelotti would put it, in a player's career. That's all there is to it. He'll be back. He's 33, but he'll be back. He needs a rest, like all of the Newcastle players. And and I think following on from that, I think part of the reason there's such a strong reaction to it is because he's been so consistent and so solid and so, like, almost not put a foot wrong since he joined. So when he has a, a spate of, of mistakes, it seems very jarring, you know, because we come to expect that he's the one who never messes up for them. I, I want to defend... I cannot believe I'm saying this. I, I want to defend Newcastle a little bit in the sense that Barry's kind of written off talk of fatigue as excuses, which I think is... It's just a reality. Like, they've had, for quite a long time now, they've had, like, almost an entire eleven out injured. And it's a little bit deceptive, because if we sit down and watch the team they put out, it's often quite... You know, the ones they've got fit look quite strong on paper. But you're missing... Like, for this one, you've got Harvey Barnes, Alexander Isak, Joel Anton, Manquillo, Murphy, Pope, Shah, Target, Tonali, and Willock out with injury. It's more or less an entire eleven, and quite a good eleven as well. That's just not available. And it's been that way for weeks. So, so, so the players, you've, you've had no chance to rotate at all. And for a team whose playing style is all about dynamism and transition and running, having these guys play every third game for a long time, it is a big ask. It's very difficult. It is a huge disadvantage. And I think that's part of why we've seen this dip in form. Fulham went through on penalties as well. They beat Everton 7-6. Uh, Tom Greatrex was at the poorest set of winning penalties last night, obviously from the Football Supporters Association, big Fulham fan. Isn't it that which makes it all the sweeter? Uh, Dylan, could Ian Rushton take a better penalty than Onana? Yes, he really didn't catch that one, did he? But let's start with Archie Rintut, who demanded his Fulham minute uh, to be joyous about them getting to a League Cup final, semi-final. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself for the first time in their history. Max, I am still buzzing after Fulham's victory. A glorious night for the Cheeseboard Collective at Goodison Park. The fact that Jordan Pickford got a hand on four of Fulham's seven scored penalties makes it all the sweeter. That there was an embarrassing moment that didn't happen to us during the shootout. Thank you, Amadou Onana. And I had to turn my sound off the TV. Such were the nerves for the penalties. I tried putting on a Fulham shirt to coerce a penalty save. It didn't work, so I had to take it off. But after that very painful cup defeat at Old Trafford back in March, when you might remember that Fulham imploded quite spectacularly, looking at you, Alexander Mitrovic, to go and then have this night just a few months later, normally after painful defeats, and I say something good will come around the corner, it doesn't. And this time it did. So, yay. That's about it. Cheers. Thank you, Archie. Um, uh, the Cottage Tactico says, does Marco Silva get anywhere near enough credit? 100 goals to win the championship. 10th in the Premier League. Uh, look how hard promoted teams are finding it this year. FA Cup quarterfinal. Loses his best player, but consolidates in the Premier League this year. Carabao Cup semi-final. Lars. Are we giving Marco Silver enough credit? I think it's a very fair point. Uh, I think I've personally slept on Fulham a little bit this season in terms of how well they've done to cope with Mitrovic leaving. I think this is a team, when you look at it on paper, it's there's not a lot of players that stand out, but they have um, they look like they're absolutely in no danger of getting relegated. They have this little cup run now, and it is a team that seems to be performing as more than the sum of their parts, and, uh, and I think the coach deserves a lot of credit for that. Mm. I mean, credit... Credit to both sides, I think, for fielding pretty much their first 11, you know. Yeah. Um, especially Everton, given they're sort of still vaguely near the bottom, you know. Uh, they, you know they probably get some points back. They're doing very well, but uh, they both went for it. Um, uh, Liverpool beat West Ham 5-1. This, Barry, was very much one team 
making six changes and being really good and one team making six changes and being really <laughs> terrible. Yeah, um, it was just an absolute rout. Um, West Ham didn't turn up. There's talk there was illness in the camp. Um, David Moyes rang the changes and his team were absolutely obliterated in a game I thought would be good but was just really one-sided and it's quite interesting actually that the main takeout from it was apart from a couple of excellent goals from Sabah Zlai and Jared Bowen uh, that Jurgen Klopp was was complaining about the lack of atmosphere generated by the fans in the stand behind him um, I think managers are always on a sticky wicket when they complain about things like that even if they do have a point but uh Atmospheres in English grounds are generally dreadful anyway, so uh, I'm not sure why he, he picked that particular game to to uh, flag it up. Maybe it's because Arsenal are, are next up. But, um, yeah, a very one-sided game. That David Moyes was very defensive afterwards, saying, you know, what, what do you want from us? Uh, <laughs> we've, we've delivered a trophy. Uh, we're we're in contention for a Champions League place. I'm not so sure about that, but and we've won seven over last nine. You know, which are fair enough points. But I I think now that West Ham fans have got a taste for silverware, they want more and expected a bit better effort from their team in in this game. Yeah, I mean, I I must say that um, in French we would say that that West Ham um, team was neither goat nor cabbage. <laughs> Now, this probably is an, exp- an expression which requires explanation, but we won't go there. It was, was neither one thing nor the other. I feel like it rec- is there a Norwegian expression? No, just, uh, is there a Norwegian expression for this? Well, neither fish nor fowl. That's, that's yeah, pretty, that's what the one I... Yeah, but, but yeah. goat nor cabbage, yeah, I'm sorry, absolutely. you cannot just go... We, I'm not going to explain that. You are going to have <laughs> no, to No, no, I don't want one. I don't, I, don't, I don't want one. I don't want one. I'm happy with it. No, no, no. So neither goat nor cabbage, because... Um, why, for example, do you leave Lucas Paqueta, who is not injured, who is not ill, on the bench? For example, he's their best player, right? We all agreed yeah, on that. Yeah. You're playing a quarterfinal against Liverpool. If you win this quarterfinal, you look at what who's left in the competition and you think, ooh, mm-hmm, quite fancy mm-hmm. that. But what you do, you choose a team which is neither your A team nor your B team. You choose a kind of... Um, a goatee cabbage. A goat, goatee cabbage team, and which yeah. is one thing and not the other. So the message it passes on to the players is that we care about this, but if we lose, that's not such a big deal. Um, why not play the kids or play the, a proper team? I mean, it's not as if if it were in the you know the first round of this competition, you could quite easily understand it, think, okay, it doesn't really matter. This is a quarterfinal. I mean, it's not a huge competition, but, yeah. you know, West Ham, having won the European... Europa uh, Conference League, if they could continue with winning the League Cup, for example, bloody hell, that that would be really something for a club like West Ham. And here it's like, nah, well, the message was muddled and I think they got the just desserts for that, uh, despite uh, Bowen's absolutely magnificent goal. But didn't Liverpool do the same thing? Sorry, Philip. Like, like, you know, they made six changes. They, they... I mean, it's a different depth of squad. Did right? you see the changes? Point? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and there's a slight difference in the uh, in in yeah you know, in the squad. Yeah, and I feel like there's a huge difference in that Liverpool obviously have other targets that they're going for this season that are important for the club, whereas West Ham are in a situation now where like they're not going to get relegated. There's no way that's happening. 
but I, I think the odds of them making the Champions League through the league are are remote to to you know not worth really talking about, and being this close to a final, it's it I, it is one of those when you see a team rotate for a game like this, when you see a mid-table team rotate for a game like this, you start asking. What are you for? Like, what? What is the point of this? Uh, if you're not, because this is actually a chance for this club to achieve something and to give the fans an incredible day out. And I don't see the logic. You, I know they've got United in, at home in the, the league at the weekend. United looking vulnerable. There's a chance for a big win uh, in East London there. But like, what are you saving yourself for? Surely these are the sort of moments you have. So especially when you know that Liverpool have got Arsenal coming up, so they're always going to rotate. So this is a chance to put them out. There are not that many strong teams left in the competition. Just seemed like a huge opportunity missed to me. It was it was neither Leak nor Haddock, uh, <laughs> n- neither neither Cod nor Potato. I mean, I think we we can we can really do a few of these. I think from Liverpool's point of view, Baz. I mean, you mentioned it. Sobersley's goal was brilliant. I like Curtis Jones dribbled. Sort of, it was John Barnes at the Maracanã, right? Dribbled for a long time, didn't actually dribble past anyone, but the seas parted and, and there was the goal. Daryl Bone's goal was great. But but in terms of what Klopp said, I thought it was interesting. I mean, managers occasionally say this, and obviously if you're in a comfortable position, you know, it's unlikely Nuno Espirito Santo is going to say it after his first game, is it? You know, like like Klopp might have earned the right. But I just thought it was like the the phrase was interesting, wasn't it? Saying, you know, uh, you know, Arsenal are going to be up for this, blah, 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 blah. If it's too much football in December, if you are not in the right shape, give your ticket to somebody else. I just love the idea of a fan being like, I'm just not up, I'm just not up for this one. <laughs> Does anybody want this? Like, it's fun. I've got to stand myself down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just in the, I'm in the red zone. I'm knackered. <laughs> I'm hoarse. What if you've got laryngitis? You go, shit, I really want to go, but I won't be able to sing for Jürgen. <laughs> what can I do? Anyway, I mean, I don't know. I thought it was quite funny. There's no question on that note, Barry. In which case, let me talk to you about Middlesbrough. I don't know if you have lots of Middlesbrough knowledge. They beat Port Vale 3-0, getting to the semis 20 years after winning it in 2004. Bradford, the last side from outside the top flight to reach the final when they lost to Swansea in 2013. So um, good luck to them. And they have Chelsea. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten that Middlesbrough won this tournament in my lifetime <laughs> I really had I had to look up who they beat and it was um, Big Sam's Bolton I think uh, well I know it was but I, I I'm sure I must have watched that game probably would I have spoken no we haven't been going that long we've only been going since 2017 I've no recollection of that game whatsoever no recollection of Middlesbrough winning the trophy um, and but they did and uh, they might win it again this season. This is your sort of textbook. No one really cares about the League Cup until you suddenly wake up one morning and discover your team's in the semi-final and suddenly it's very important. Um, and and it is important to them because they're having a season that's neither squid nor <laughs> wig <sweet-y>. wham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, they started really badly. I think they failed to win any of their first seven, lost five, drew two. There was talk that Michael Carrick might be out of a job. Then they won six in a row, and they've been kind of up and down ever since. Win a couple, lose a couple. Uh, Like Newcastle, they have also had rotten luck with injuries. They had nine players out for this game. They've lost another five uh, in the game against Port Vale. Um, 
Tommy Smith, Darren Lenehan are both out for the season. Riley McGree, Max, uh, the Australian, mm-hmm. interestingly, he has uh, plantar fasciitis. Oh, dear. Oh, well, I could talk to I him. I believe is the same ailment you're afflicted with, so you can probably empathise with him. Um, so, yeah, they, they've got a lot of players injured. Obviously, I'm not going to dismiss them as just being lazy and moany <laughs> like their fellow Northeastern side. And they've got Chelsea in the, the semi-final, which is very much a game they'll see as winnable. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, and, and the game itself against Port Vale, it's not really worth talking about. It was more comfortable than Liverpool's win over uh, West Ham. They were 2-0 up inside 20 minutes or so. Uh, Gavin Massey missed a sitter for Port Vale at 2-0. And then um, Matt Crooks finished it off for Middlesbrough 3-0 with, I think, half an hour or more to go. And that was it, game over. And what Riley needs to do is a, a lifelong commitment to calf stretching, which you'd hope as a footballer he does anyway. Some good insoles and you just wear your running shoes all day, every day, and you'll be okay. Yeah, that win in 2004, Joseph Desiree Job and Budwin Zenden with the goals for Middlesbrough in the first seven minutes. Kevin Davis scored a goal, uh, a mistake from Mark Schwarzer, but he redeemed himself with a series of excellent saves. Some guys in this team, Akotcha, Campo, Djorkaev, uh, uh, Bruno and Gotti, uh, Emerson Tome in the Bolton side, <laughs> Danny Mills, Ugo Ehiog, Gareth Southgate, Frank Cadru. What a back four for Middlesbrough with Mendieta, Boateng, Juninho playing for them, of course, as well. Um, so uh, there we go. Yeah, uh, Chelsea, Middlesbrough, um, Liverpool, Fulham. In 2013, Juninho said winning the League Cup with Middlesbrough was better than when he won the World Cup with Brazil in 2002. So there you go. Uh, and that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll look ahead to the weekend's Premier League action. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, so, Premier League football, Palace Brighton is on tonight for some reason um, at the weekend. I mean, Liverpool-Arsenal, we've touched on the Liverpool side of things. Uh, Lars, Jurgen Klopp wants everyone to yell incredibly loudly. Um, but it is a massive, it's a massive game, isn't it? And and look, we oversold uh, Liverpool-Manchester United, but this is a different beast, this one, isn't it? Oversold. I mean, it, it is a thing that sometimes happens that... Um... A game's importance and significance is not matched by its entertainment value. That doesn't mean it's necessarily been oversold. It's just it's the thing that can happen. But here, I think we will. I think we have a fair shout at at getting both because I think this Liverpool team is it, it generates 
eminently watchable games because going forward they're creating a lot there's a lot of things going on you've got some magnificent attackers in this team you have a much more attacking midfield than we've seen under Klopp previously but they're still a bit vulnerable down the other end like they're still not fully reliable in defense and I think that is just as a neutral I am massively here for it like this is the Liverpool we want to see Uh, because more often than not I mean sadly against United we didn't see that but I, I think Arsenal should have more than enough going forward to trouble Liverpool, but you also back Liverpool to 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 to, to usually produce. I mean, good, I know saying that sounds silly after they were held by United, but I, I still think this is true for most games. And I'm, I'm as a neutral with with really no skin in the game whatsoever. I'm massively looking forward to watching this. Philippe, with skin in the game, uh, how do you feel about it? I feel oddly, bizarrely, and worryingly confident mm, about Arsenal's chances. Um, because I think that the um, slight um, problems that Liverpool has at the back and which Lars has just been talking about are are not going to be solved in a matter of days. They will be there to be exploited. Uh, I think that Arsenal has got um, the resources in midfield to actually uh, be more present in midfield than what Liverpool can propose. I also think that when you see the form that Martin Odegaard is starting to show, uh, the fact that Saka Martinelli Jesus are all available. You put all this together, you add to this the new resilience found by their own defence with William Saliba, who is probably the best centre-back in the country at the moment. And you think that apart from the fact that Arsenal still has is a bit wobbly when it comes to its goalkeeping position, um, if, you, if you look at it, I think, fairly in a very detached way, you think if you were to give points um, per se- sector of the, of the team before the game, I think Arsenal would come on top. This being said, of course, this is without counting on the famous Anfield roar and the capacity of Jurgen Klopp to uh, to mobilise the faithful uh, in Liverpool uh, to carry the Reds to victory. But no, honestly, I, I I think there's there's it's a big big chance for Arsenal actually, uh, because they're they're actually they're actually clicking into gear now. They haven't been fantastic since the beginning of the season, but they're improving from game to game to game at the moment, and I think it's a perfect moment for them to actually. Uh, do something which would matter in in the in the context of a title race. You got close there, Philippe, to doing a a combined eleven of just Arsenal players there to sort of <laughs> <laughs> irritate the masses. Uh, Lars, you wanted to come in. Well, yeah, I just wanted to ask Philippe because Philippe uh, watches Arsenal slightly more forensically than I do, so I thought this would be a good 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 situation to because my feeling is. They're not. They haven't really been as swashbuckling as they were at times last season. But there is an added element of control. I think like the games are less unhinged. They've they've got more control over what's going on, which I'm thinking while they're less sometimes maybe less fun to watch than they were at times last season. I think this will could stand them in very good stead in what looks like it's going to be a proper title race. I'm nodding. You agree? You may say just you're nodding. Nodding is nodding fine. Nodding is fine, but not on a podcast. Well, as an answer, that is neither radish nor halibut, my friend. I'm, I'm hoping for <laughs> hoping for words. Forrest played Bournemouth. Jonathan says, who is likely to replace Nuno as Forrest manager? Um, <laughs> Jim says, Forrest fans will always love Steve Cooper, but sentiment aside, was it his time? And will Nuno prove an improvement if an initially uninspiring one? Barry. Yeah, it's always dangerous to criticise a club for sacking a manager who's doing okay and replacing him because you know a lot of us did that when uh, Maurizio Pochettino was 
this guy we'd never heard of was parachuted into Southampton. Who did he replace? I can't remember. Nigel Atkins. Nigel Atkins, yeah. Nigel Atkins was doing a decent job at Southampton and he's a lovely guy who, who everyone seems to like with his little inspirational messages on Twitter. I don't know if he still does them, but... Uh, um, so, yeah, that, that ended up being a good move. Um, this one... There was a lot of uh, love for Steve Cooper at Forest. He he got the club. He also got them into the Premier League uh, after 23 years, kept them there and was doing all right this season, but they're on a bad run. He, he, there's talk he, him and uh, Maranakis, the owner, didn't see eye to eye on a number of things and Marinakis was actively looking for a replacement behind his back and Cooper was well aware of this. So it's no great surprise he's gone. He leaves with a lot of goodwill in the bank from Forest fans uh, who were seem to have been sad but not hugely surprised that he did get the sack. Uh, whether or not Nuno will do a good job remains to be seen. I'm not sure what exactly it is Marinakis wants. Uh He's he has talked of Forest winning trophies, of Forest sort of establishing themselves in the top third of the Premier League, and you know that's not inconceivable given the his his largesse in the transfer market. But um, yeah, Cooper will be fine. He will get another job. There's already talk of him going to Palace and Roy Hodgson possibly moving upstairs or retiring again or possibly getting sacked, which would seem a little harsh. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't imagine Cooper will have any shortage of job offers. I'm still not sure how good a manager he is, but Forest fans love him. That's undeniable. As long as Roy is allowed to, they cut the camera can cut to him in the stands <laughs> and he can laugh as giddily as he did in the last game. I did just check. I couldn't find an official Nigel Atkins uh, Twitter, what he was saying, so I couldn't get any of his motivational words. Um, Nuno, as producer Joel points out, has been compared on this podcast to an ageing Jedi, an ancient knight gathering moss, and the guy who guards the Holy Grail in Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, La- Lars, which one will they get? And do you... Do you think it's a... I mean, he did get Wolves seventh twice in the Premier League, you know. So after promotion from the Championship. So, like, on paper, that's how you should judge him rather than the sort of bad bit at Tottenham. Yeah, and he, he had that Wolves team set up to defend quite resiliently and then hit people on the counter quite efficiently. And that just kind of wasn't the job description at Tottenham. And he seemed to kind of fall through there a little bit. But maybe this is a better fit for him. Uh, I, I find it a little bit hard to be very excited about Nuno as an appointee anywhere. But Forrest are in this sort of situation where it doesn't look like they're going to go down because the three newly promoted teams are all really struggling. They should probably be doing a little bit better. I think with Marinakis being such a having such a reputation for being a loose cannon, our main instinct and and Cooper having so much goodwill, our main inst- first instinct is to think this must be a silly thing to do. But then if you just take away all the noise and look at it, they've won one in thirteen. I mean that that's the kind of form that usually will get you in trouble as a manager. So maybe not a completely shocking decision. I just I think if you're a Forest fan and you've lost a coach that you had a very strong emotional bond with and he's been replaced by Nuno, that's not a great feeling to wake up to, I think. Probably not. 
you have chosen wisely. That's what Maranaka <laughs> should say to, 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 to Nuno. But Nuno was champion of Saudi Arabia last season, so that changes everything. It's true. It's a very prestigious uh, competition. Yes. He was. Absolutely. Many congratulations to him for that. Um, West Ham, Manchester United, um, seventh versus eighth. It's the Everton Cup, this game. Absolutely enormous. Spurs, Everton. Um, uh, Everton have got Spurs and Man City over the Christmas break. Interesting test for Dice Ball, isn't it? Because they are two games where they won't have the ball a lot, but they'll get some set pieces. Be interesting to see how both those defences uh, react to the ball being swung under their crossbar. Um, Aston Villa play Sheffield United on Friday night. Um, and uh, you know, you know the way at Christmas you sort of start getting confused about mm-hmm. what day it is and all that. I'm already <laughs> at that point, and yes. Yeah, Christmas Day is until Monday, uh, yeah. so yeah. But give it a week, and I'll just be all over the place. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll we'll have a show on Christmas Eve, by the way, Barry, which I think you're on, where we'll review all of these games. So you know, you don't have to know what day it is. It's the day after <laughs> all the football happens, I think, and then we'll we'll do some talking about it. Now, while we've been on air, um, we've had the European Super League verdict. Um, <laughs> as Barry had his telly on. Uh, before the pod, but he turned it on, and I think CBBC was on. So I don't, I don't know what the tweenies are saying about the European Super League verdict. <laughs> but yeah, the European Court of Justice ruling on the Super League is out. It has found against UEFA and FIFA. Uh, UEFA and FIFA rules banning clubs joining breakaway competitions like the European Super League are unlawful. The ECJ has ruled it has been, it had been claimed by the European Super League and its backers. A22, that UEFA from FIFA were breaking competition law by threatening to sanction clubs and players who joined the breakaway league. The court does say that its ruling does not mean that a Super League should be approved. Uh, Seb Stafford-Bloor tweeting, uh, the ECJ verdict is like when the power goes out in Jurassic Park and all the T-Rexes are able to leave their cages. Um, Adam Hurry, does this mean there will be another Anglo-Italian Cup? Or <laughs> um, Anyway, Philippe, what does it actually mean? Um, it would take some time to... Uh, it means, first of all, because UEFA has lost and uh, lost in a big, big way. We were not expecting that. We were expecting a judgment that would be um, neither sheep nor plum and which would kind of give um, reason to both sides to claim victory. And this hasn't been the case because when I'm reading... Um, the powers of UEFA and FIFA are not subject to any such criteria. FIFA and UEFA are therefore abusing a dominant position. Moreover, given their arbitrary nature, the language is quite amazing, their rules on approval, control and sanctions must be held to be unjustified restrictions on the freedom to provide service. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. It's basically... So, so sorry, sorry to ask a basic question, to say... You know, football clubs are football club, right? You know, you could be a football club and be, a, you know, you could just go where you want, right? There's no reason. People join these leagues because they're the leagues, right? They exist and UEFA, people join UEFA because, well, you want to play in UEFA's competition. But this is basically saying you don't have to. Well, it's basically saying, no, it's not saying, it's saying that because on the other hand, they're saying this doesn't mean that a Super League would be fine, legal and um, you know, adhere to the regulations in place or the regulations which should be in place. What it's saying is that, and in fact, uh, this is true, there is a conflict of interest here. Because on one hand, you are the competition organiser, a kind of governing body, even if FIFA is a governing body when UEFA is not, but a kind of governing body on one hand. And on the other, you're also somebody 
who gets to make an awful lot of money, you're the, you're, it's, it's an economic thing. You're an entrepreneur and you can't have both. And that's what, that's what basically uh, the, the court is saying is that we have here a, a genuine conflict of interest at the very heart of the organization of, of football. And what works, by the way, for UEFA also works for FIFA, which in the wake of the announcement of the new expanded FIFA World Cup also will provide some interesting, I think, uh, uh, more chapters in this long, long-going saga. But honestly, Max's first reaction is that I'm really, really surprised that the judges went as far as they did and basically uh, gave um, UEFA what will be felt as a stinking defeat absolutely everywhere. The guys from uh, A22, you know, the Super League guys, uh, are going to be dancing. The champagne is flowing in Luxembourg and the rest of it. Uh, it's going to be interesting, by the way, to see what um, uh, the uh, uh, what the federations, the member associations uh, and the leagues are going to do because you might have seen that, A, Bundesliga has decided no way. None of our clubs is joining any breakaway uh, league. And the Italian FA, I said that any club that would be uh, joining this kind of breakaway league will be expelled from Serie A. So Juve, Juve Inter and Milan. I mean, uh, what's left, I don't know, but they would be expelled. So this is, the can of worms is well and truly open, Max, basically. Right. A22 have tweeted, we have won the hashtag right to compete. The UEFA monopoly is over. Football is free. Clubs are now free from the threat of sanction and free to determine their own future. I suppose the, the next question is then, d- does this mean all the clubs that went into the Super League will, you know, want to do it again? Or won't they, will they have been burnt, especially by the reaction from their own supporters, right? To go, well, we, you know, we can't do this. If you already said you'd be chucked out of Serie A, be chucked out of the Bundesliga, I presume the Premier League would do the same I don't know and 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 La Liga but like is that the next the next stage is what to see what the the biggest clubs do because if I don't know Port Vale and Bochum say hey we're finally free we're you know we're gonna launch out on our own I'm not sure anyone's gonna be that excited the guys from A22 which is basically the guys from the Super League now have a very solid foundation from which to work they're not going to repeat the mistake they made first time round which is they didn't quite, they were not quite prepared for um, the pushback. They were not prepared full stop and they paid the price very quickly. And their project, as you will remember, uh, their project just uh, died a death within hours, basically, of being announced. So they're going to be a bit more careful about that. Uh, I think the first thing we're going to see now is uh, maneuvering um, between the clubs themselves. So you can imagine that those who have stayed with A22, which is not everybody, are going to go back to their former friends, to the Liverpools and Manchester Uniteds and uh, Arsenal's and Chelsea's and, and carry on and, and, and clubs of that ilk and tell them, now you can see we can do it. Let's think of a good way to do it. It is only the start of a new, um, yes, I mean, the can of worms, you, you've got to wait until the worms turn, the maggots turn into flies. Right. Um, and we're not at that stage yet. For the moment, I think they'll just be happy. They'll be feasting on UEFA's corpse at the moment and uh, enjoying the fact that uh, they've been given this uh, magnificent Christmas prezi by the Luxembourg Accord. Uh, it's, uh, we have to repeat, it is totally, totally, utterly unexpected. And it is genuinely something that's going to shake up all of football for a very long time and perhaps for, I mean, actually, perhaps forever in terms of the way that the competitions are, are held, the competitions are ruled. Um, 
this opens so many opportunities for others to attack UEFA and FIFA in the way they run their competitions that um, I think the lawyers are in for a good Christmas as well. Right. We'll digest this. I presume this is not the last time we speak of this. No. Uh, before we end part two, just want to say well done to Mary Earps, who's won the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. Uh, she won Golden Glove at the World Cup in the summer. FIFA Best Women's Goalkeeper was voted England's Women Player of the Year as well. Finished fifth in the Ballon d'Or. Uh, she said, I want people to relate to me and my journey. See that I'm just a normal person trying to live out her dream. I'm trying to make goalkeeping cool. It's happening. It's happening slowly but surely. It's the Merps mission. Uh, goalkeeping is cool. I, I sort of feel if you say... <laughs> <laughs> she is obviously cooler than me. Most people are. That's if I launched someone and said, This is, I'm cool. I'm cool. Come and be cool with me. But anyway, look, well done. Um, her winning has certainly seemed to annoy a lot of the right people. So that is, yes. uh, uh, you know, uh, richly deserved and uh, well done. And obviously, uh, more on that. Uh, and the whole women's game on the Guardian Women's Football Weekly, which we heartily encourage you to download and listen to wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, right, we'll be back in a second. Nick Ames joins us. Uh, he is uh, in Saudi for the Club World Cup. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Nick Ames is out in Saudi Arabia covering the Club World Cup for the Guardian. Um, uh, Snorky says, what's the point of the Club World Cup? Jack says, where does the Club World Cup belong in the rankings of competitions for club teams? No one seems to care about it unless you win. Uh, Nick, am I right in thinking there's a bit of a sort of maybe European or certainly Premier League hubris to, to how this competition is viewed around the world? Yeah, there there definitely is. If you if you speak to players from the other clubs who've been involved, we've obviously had the, the massive Egyptian club Al Ali. We've had the local side here, Al Ittihad. We've got Fluminense, who Man City play tomorrow in the final. Whose supporters are milling around town everywhere I look. Really, um, it's it, it's definitely seen as a sort of almost a validation that you know this is our moment in the sun to compete against the top European clubs and show what we can do. And I wasn't here for the first game, which was um, Itihad against uh, Auckland, but the, the matches that I've seen and been to, everyone's been quite well supported. Even Uwawa, um, Reds from Japan against Man City the other day, had a really diehard bulk of fans singing and chanting. Um, uh, um, Al Itihad here, who who got knocked out deservedly by Al Ali the other, the other, well, it was about six days ago now, um, with a team, Benzema, Kante, Fabinho, they, they still got well beaten, which um, some people might have an interesting comment on that. Um, they were very well supported, like the you know really loud fan base, really passionate. But yeah, I definitely think it's less of a dream ticket for a European or Premier League team, to be honest. Much as Man City are obviously making a lot of the right noises, and much as you know, it's not bad to have world champion on your CV. Mm. I mean, presumably they're favourites against Fluminese, but what's your knowledge of the Fluminese team? Uh, you know, I presume better than mine. Uh, my knowledge is it's a bit of a dad's army. Um, I mean, I I might pop down to their press conference a bit later where um, Felipe Melo, um, who is now 40, will be the player put up. Um, it, it would have been nice if, he, if he'd been joined by his 43-year-old goalkeeper. Um and coming up the ranks from the youth academy is um, a 35-year-old Marcelo, um, who <laughs> appears to be... I mean, I, I went to their game the other day. Um, 
Marcelo was kind of comfortably their their best player for most of it, and then spent the last sort of ten minutes in a sort of Cristiano Ronaldo at um, Euro two thousand and sixteen, coaching from a touchline, going crazy. Because you know, fair enough for Marcelo, this is the club where he started out, I, I think, and grew up. So it's a massive deal for him. He's won this tournament loads of times, but this would bring things back full circle. So, so there are, you know, that that um, there, there are people who are not members of Premier League clubs or followers of Premier League or European football, for whom this does mean a big deal. Fluminense themselves, they were quite fun. They were quite Brazilian, technical, fast. They, they'll create create a chance or two. But, I mean, Al-Ali, who they beat 2-0, could have scored three or four. And I would be over-egging the pudding if I thought City, if, well, if I said to you here that City wouldn't win comfortably. Um, you certainly know more about Fluminense than I do since I was calling them Fluminese for the first five minutes of, of, of this chat. Are you in any way related to the Max Rushton who was uh, making fun of me on a recent pod for my poor pronunciation? <laughs> yes. If it's any consolation, I was in a shopping mall the other day and I texted a, another colleague who's out here saying, oh my goodness, there's so many Palmeiras fans floating around. Um, so... <laughs> So, uh, so the guy. We're learning as we go. I blame I blame jet lag from a week ago. Uh, oh, fair enough. I am. Um, I do like the idea of Dad's army though playing football. Just you know, just some you know someone at the back yelling, "We're all doomed," and someone next to him going, "Don't panic." It's exactly what you want on a football pitch, isn't it? I mean, in terms of you know, uh, there are obviously sort of people looking ahead to the World Cup in Saudi Arabia and going. Just in terms of infrastructure, this is very different to Qatar, isn't it? Right, it's a massive place. It's got a real football history, and so you know, on that note, like, it, does it look like it is a place that could hold a World Cup in a sort of normal way? I don't know because a lot of the sites are yet to be built. At least one city where one of the stadia is likely to be Neon is yet to be built. Um, and we're sort of seeing and hearing vague things about a lot of plans. But frankly, when you're trying to get information from the Saudi side about this kind of thing, at the moment, there's a bit of a charade of, oh, oh, it's not done yet. You know, we've still got to put the bid book together, blah, blah. In which case, they should probably get Jani to delete some of his Instagram posts where he pretty much announced it. Um, so you're not... There's not too much more information forthcoming. The stadium that already exists here, where the most of the club, club World Cup is being played, is is huge and you know can easily hold international football, but it's not very well located. It's a long way out of town. Um, massive car parks everywhere. You'd want to have a look at access. You can see here in Jeddah, uh, there was a big renovation project. It's been quite a controversial one for, for reasons that we might talk about another time. Um, taking place um, where there'll be a new sta- a new stadium built and the massive entertainment hub that's closer to the town and to, um, to the city centre, which I think is something they are looking at so people aren't just being funneled out of town all the time. Um, and the old town is under heavy renovation too. There's a lot of plans. Um, I think they're still whittling down precisely what all the venues will be, but it's really hard to do much more than what for because when, when one of the cities isn't even built yet, it's hard to know what it's going to look like. What we can say, look, I've, mm. um, we'll, um, we'll come back yes. to the football culture part of it. This is different to to um, to Qatar, I think, in one way, in that you do have three or four big old clubs who have a hell of a fan base. And, you know, I I, I, I would never, having seen um, Alita had um, fan base against Ali, say, oh, you guys are, are, are 
a fly-by nights because you know you know there's I mean, there's a real passionate football culture here. How will they put that on show for the rest of the world in eleven years' time? And what it takes is a very big question and a question that, n- that nobody can really answer yet. Mm. I mean, this is one step saying the stadium's not built, but the city that the stadium is due to be <laughs> built in is also not built. Seems quite a stretch, doesn't it? Um, the Club World Cup is expanding in 2025. It'll be a summer knockout tournament made up of 32 teams. It's just what we need, Barry. Daily pods on that. Um, uh, it'll have clubs from each of the six confederations. Europe will have 12 teams. Uh, it'll be played in the US. It's going to be held every four years. Uh, Arsene Wenger says... Um, the positive impact this will have on clubs is going to be huge because it'll increase resources for clubs all over the world to develop and compete. I accept that the football calendar is a busy one, but this is a competition that's going to take place every four years. Of course, the rest period during the competition and afterwards has to be respected. Uh, Barry, as someone who doesn't believe in fatigue, um, as of 45 <laughs> minutes ago, uh, what are your thoughts on this competition? Uh, I don't really have any at the moment. Uh, I do find it quite amusing that Arsene Wenger, who just relentlessly whinged and moaned about fixture congestion uh, during his time as a manager is sort of throwing his shoulder behind this particular wheel with such enthusiasm. He's certainly changed his tune. Uh, He did get in the token mention of fatigue. I think um, Lara stitched me up like a kipper earlier, but... He said, I was completely disregarding <laughs> concerns about fatigue. Lots of football teams are fatigued, not just, you know, Newcastle don't have a monopoly on fatigue. No, no, of course. Look, more fixtures. I I think there should be far fewer. So should we have another big tournament? No, that's my immediate thought. But I'd, I'd have to sort of put more thought into it before giving my definitive verdict, which I'm sure is the one everyone in the par- corridors of power <laughs> is waiting for. On the subject of, of uh, corridors of power, I'm, I'm actually in, in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Jeddah now, um, being the cool guy in the hotel foyer, um, where, don't, don't get too excited, but there's a, a, a FIFA summit going on as we speak. Wow. I, I Philippe has just out, thrown like, up. <laughs> quite, quite surely. Well, yes, um, it's, uh, I mean, I've, I think this particular summit, it's more of a sort of, um, look ahead to stuff that we pretty much know will be in the calendar already and also a bit of a year review from uh, Infantino which I think I think Charlie Brooker could do a screen wipe on couldn't he I was here actually the day that the um, the announcement about the qualification criteria for the expanded Club World Cup was made on, on Sunday um, it, it's a little bit disappointing I think as a member of the media that no press conference or sort of scrutiny is offered up for something like this. This is a process that, although it was put on everyone's desk last December towards the end of the World Cup in Qatar, it's been ongoing for seven years um, with a bit of a stall during COVID. I don't think there's been much chance to really interrogate it and ask people about it. It's very instructive when you the day after they make this announcement, you go and talk to Bernardo Silva at a Man City press conference, and he says, well, look, we ha- um, we haven't been consulted. We're at a much bigger risk of injury. Um, we don't get Christmas anymore, but we don't get summer anymore, basically saying it, it is too much. So I, I, I'm uncomfortable with the way that this has been rushed through, you know, pretty much silently without any sort of need to scrutinize it. I was just going to like to immediately break ranks a little bit, say because I think 
very few of us on this panel are super hyped about the direction the sport is going in and the people who are in charge of things. But I'd just kind of like to throw in that I think philosophically and theoretically, the idea of a stronger, ex- extended, and worthwhile club World Cup makes a lot of sense to me. I think I'm, very, I'm a simpleton. I think the idea that you start at, like, the lowest level of football are local competitions, and the better teams move on to national competitions the best teams from that qualify for continental competitions. And it makes total sense to me that there should be an intercontinental competition on top of that tree. Uh, Whereas what we have right now, as Nick will appreciate, the current tournament is is neither turbot nor nor, uh, apple, I think. It's kind of, it's definitely, it exists, but doesn't seem to work for a lot of people. And I don't hate the idea of trying to make a proper Club World Cup. But... Clearly, this workload, the workload of the players is, is an issue. I mean, what a few days these have been for UEFA. They lose the case in Luxembourg and they see FIFA just throwing this uh, in their way. Basically, it's a direct attempt at killing the Champions League and killing UEFA as the organizer of the biggest club tournament on the planet. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing, if they drank champagne, they would be drinking it in the streets of Riyadh and Jeddah because this is a massive victory for Saudi Arabian football clubs. At the moment, they've already got one club qualified for the 2025. They're top of the rankings in Asia. They will probably get a second spot because of that. And one of their clubs is probably going to, to win the Champions League this season. They might have three clubs, three clubs in that Club World Cup in 2025. Um, I think everything that's been said about the lack of consultation has already been said. FIFPRO has published a statement which I would invite people to read in which they state very clearly what they think about this competition and the fact that as per usual, no consultation, no vote, no problem when it comes to FIFA. And last, uh, we already know, just to give some information, the names of some of the clubs, Max, which will take part in this competition including some English clubs. So I can already tell you that Al-Akhli of Egypt, Widat Casablanca, Morocco, Al-Hilal of Saudi Arabia, Urarawet Diamonds, that's Japan, uh, that will take part, as well as Chelsea, Manchester City, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, PSG, Inter, Porto and Benfica, Monterey, Seattle Sounders, Club Leon, and poor Auckland City, as well as uh, uh, Palmeiras, Flamengo, and Fluminense. So we already know what the competition is going to look like, and it basically will be genuinely the biggest names in world football. But for what purpose is a different matter, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about this again in the future. Daily pods in 2025. Um, uh, Nick, we'll let you go. Uh, Enjoy the summit, and uh, uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Thank you, guys. Merry Christmas, and also to everyone uh, who's listening. Thanks a lot. Just briefly uh, on Australian Christmas dinners and roast potatoes, which I claim did not uh, were not there on the plate uh, of an Australian Christmas. David Squires, our very own, said Australian Christmas dinners are a disgrace. I take my own roast potatoes to the in-laws, amongst other stupid local things like pav, uh, starchy passive aggression by stealth, is what he says. I don't know. Does he mean pavlova? I don't know. Um Anyway, um, Michael says, not a question, but just needed to point out that roast potatoes are a staple of Christmas lunches in Australia. With the greatest respect to Max's family, there's been enough Australia hate on the pod recently without needing to pick on our culinary choices. Merry Christmas all. Yeah, many people uh, noted that roast potatoes are on a plate. Uh, Ben says, will Lars be bottling and selling his special Nordic juice in time for Christmas? I don't know if you heard this mentioned, Lars. Well, enough people messaged me about it that I definitely had had to get through it, yeah. 
No, that's. I thought that was very indelicate of Barry to reveal. <laughs> I do apologise. Uh, incident. <laughs> yes. And finally, um, Avenue Ensemble, the guys that uh, wrote and played, well, didn't write, but played the string quartet version of the Guardian Football Weekly theme, uh, have just tweeted, back on the Guardian Football Weekly podcast. What a lovely surprise. However, Tom, uh, who is in charge of uh, Avenue Ensemble, can confirm he's never actually met Max, never visited Fortune Street Park, or owned a cello, uh, which is... <laughs> I'm sure I met someone in a park with a cello who said they'd play in a string quartet for Football Weekly. Maybe it was just a fever dream. Anyway, Merry Christmas to Football Weekly panellists and listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, and that'll do for today's pod. Thanks, Barry. Thank you. Cheers, Lars. Thank you, Max. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Julian Noel. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. Uh, we'll be back on Christmas Eve. This is The Guardian.